0: Hello, welcome to the Tuesday edition of Oh God What Now, the podcast that has been judged your one-stop shop for political gags and analysis after a lengthy VAR review. My name's Andrew Harrison. On this week's edition, we ask yet again if the biggest threat to the Conservatives isn't Labour or Vladimir Putin, but themselves. Plus, while my Qatar gently weeps, the least fondly awaited World Cup in history kicks off on Sunday in Qatar. Will we be watching? Will anyone be watching? Award-winning football journalist Filippo Clare is here to take us through it. And finally, in a spin on you are the referee, you are the culture secretary. Channel 4 seems safe from privatisation after Rishi Sunak sacked Nadine Dorries, but the future of the BBC is still up in the air and arts funding is in tumult as the Arts Council moves millions from London to support theatres, ballet and opera outside the capital. While we wait to see what sort of culture secretary Michelle Donnellan will be, what will we do in the job? Okay, let's meet the panel. Russ Taylor is a writer and Podmasters contributing editor. Hi, Ros. Hello, Andrew. So the Royal College of Nursing has voted for strike action for the first time in its history, uh, which is obviously a massive undertaking for a massive workforce. They're assuring patients that they will get the care they need no matter what. What's going to be stronger in the British public, love of the NHS or the male hating on strikers?
1: It's very difficult. I think actually some people will feel very torn about these strikes because on the one hand, nurses have every right to feel upset about the way they've been treated and at their low pay and at the way they're expected to cover for absent colleagues because the NHS can't recruit enough. On the other hand, we've never had a national nurses strike in Britain before. And I think people who are going to have their ops delayed and their cancer treatments delayed, which is going to happen, are going to feel very frightened. And very alarmed. And we are in new territory here. And I would say that there are no easy answers here. I mean, Angela Rayner did a, an interview with the FT over the weekend in which she was asked whether Labour would give public sector workers 10% rises. Bear in mind that the RCN wants uh, 15.1%. Mm-hmm. And she said brutally no. Now, when someone on the left of the Labour Party is saying that, we know that it's not going to be easy. I think there will be a sense that the country is out of control and a lot of people will be panicking.
0: I've got a feeling I'm going to be returning to this an awful lot as the autumn wears on. Also with us is comedian, writer and panellist on the last ever Mock the Week. Uh, It's Ahir Shaw. Hello, Ahir. How are you doing? Hello, Andrew. Very well, thank you. Did you get a a carriage clock when you finished on uh, Mock the Week?
2: Well, they um, gave us all the mugs uh, that you have, and then suddenly we all revealed, like, yeah, we've all got, like, half a dozen of these
0: at least. (laughs) We take them every time, obviously. Yeah, just like this place, actually. Um, You wrote in the FT last week about your dream dinner party, and instead of the usual pics of uh, Obama or Adele or Nelson Mandela, you went with the entire main cast of Goodness Gracious Me.
2: Mm, I did. Although now that you mention Obama, Mandela and Adele, that does actually sound like quite a good one. And maybe I made a tremendous error of judgment, but, um, no, i uh I, I pick those because i I wanted it to be something that a was reasonably realistic and feasible. You know, like I feel like yeah. with dream dinner parties, a lot of people say Winston Churchill or someone. It's like yeah. you like, could take Churchill. Yes. You couldn't take <laughs> Churchill in your kit. There's no absolute It's like when you read about how seventeen percent of Americans think they could take a chimp in a fist fight, and it's like you'd lose in thirty seconds. Come on. Uh, so I just thought that uh, these figures from my childhood, who were so instrumental in me ending up doing what I do,
0: uh, would be nice people to have around and uh, have and give thanks to. Does goodness gracious me get its get its fair due? Do you think now that Prime Minister Indian is a fact?
2: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I, I think it, a serious point to, on that is that, in addition to being a brilliantly funny show, I know from personal experience that the existence of something like goodness gracious me, created a possibility just through what it was like visually, right? I I was seven, eight years old when it came on television for the first time. I wasn't thinking of any of the wider political implications of anything. I was just like, oh my God, for the first time on screen, that's people who look like my family and we're doing this and we're having a lot. And oh, that's a thing That we can do. And I think that on the subject of, for example, Prime Minister Indian, uh, right, you know, there's a a lot of ink has been uh, spilled over the degree to which someone like Sunak is representative or not. But again, the seven, eight year old who is watching television and seeing a prime minister who, for the first time, looks like their family isn't thinking about any of those wider things. They're just seeing, oh, this is a thing that we can do, apparently. Cool.
0: The cast looked like your family, and yet the Nans sounded like everybody's Nans, somehow. (laughs) Our special guest this week is a football journalist, broadcaster, regular contributor to The Guardian and to the new independent international football magazine, Josimar. He's also a recording artist on the legendary L Records label. Philippe Ocler, welcome to the show. How are you? Not too bad. Thank you very much. Glad to have you here. We're going to be going into the uh, moral penalty area of the World Cup later, but you are an Arsenal fan. Mm -hmm. You must be pretty happy at the minute. I'm absolutely delighted. Yes, it's, it's nice to have your Christmas sorted early. I have, a, I have a moral question to ask you. Arsenal have had a visit Rwanda tag on their shirts yep. for ages and ages now. What are progressive fans like yourself thinking about their contribution to the Home Office's deportation scheme? Does uh, it ring
3: I, badly? I, yeah, I think um, uh, usually you, know, you would talk about the cognitive dissonance of most fans when it comes to their own club. When it comes to Arsenal, when I talk to, to fellow fans, I can't think of a single one who uh, would actually agree Mm-hmm. Uh, with that particular sponsorship, I would also say that many of us uh have a slight problem with uh, the name of the the stadium we play at, and we try to avoid it, like I said the grove, for example mm-hmm. <laughs> or the home of football um, but uh, yes there there is that ongoing problem I think like like everything, if you go somewhere, keep your eyes open. And yeah. that's, that's the lesson for it.
0: Well, of course, as a Liverpool fan, I was able to go, oh, yes, we've got great owners until like two weeks ago and it's like you're going to be sold now to some petrochemical yeah. outfit or whatever, or at least a chunk of you is going to be sold. <laughs> so.
3: Well, and uh, also you've got a very interesting um, betting partner at Liverpool, 188.com.
0: Well, yes, and okay. I know that you're ve- you're very strong on uh, yes, sports betting, which uh, may well be emerging later in the podcast. Before we get started, a quick update... Our Christmas show at 21 Soho in London has now sold out. Every single ticket has gone. So thank you, everybody, for ensuring that we actually get a Christmas this year. We will be streaming it live for Patreon people, though. So if you can't come and you want to get to see Dorian, Roz, Naomi and Alex, possibly in Christmas jumpers, Roz is pulling a face, do sign up now. Search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast. You can sign up. It'll be the best Christmas present you can give yourself. Also, in further excitement... The new series of Ian and Dorian's fantastic podcast series, Origin Story, is out now. Episode one concerns Ayn Rand and it is an incredible listen. If you thought you knew how horrible she was, you didn't. Get Origin Story now on your favourite app or follow the link in the show notes. It's been two months since Kwasi Kwarteng's disastrous mini-budget and the Tories are picking up the pieces from the fools who bequeathed them this mess. That would be the Conservative Party. As Quarteng himself deflected the blame to his former BFF, Liz Truss, it has emerged that fully 30 billion of the Treasury's 60 billion fiscal black hole is directly down to Trussonomics. Labour still leading the polls by about 20 points, but what state will the Conservatives be in come the next election? Does Rishi Sunak have a plan to steer the party away from an iceberg of consequences? Ros, there is a terrible pathos to the fact that after 12 years of all this and all the excursions into... Boosterism and sunlit uplands. The Conservatives have brought us right back to where they started, right back to austerity, the beginning. Is that is that it for ideas-driven conservatism? Then is this what we've got?
1: It feels like it at the moment, doesn't it? Because mm. a lot of people are asking, what is the purpose of Rishi Sunak? What is he for? What does he stand for? What does he believe? And. It's got to the stage now where various people are saying, well, we don't, you know, we don't really know what he, he should do, but perhaps the only way he can win back uh, support from the Red Wall is to reheat Johnsonism. Note that Johnsonism, I'm not sure, was a thing when Johnson was in power, but now it does seem to be because the uh, content light that characterised that era now seems positively full of hope and optimism. And, of course, there was the emphasis on levelling up, which I suppose is the way you could define it. And people are saying, well, you know, because of that, he mustn't abandon Northern Rail powerhouse. Uh, as it's always called. He mustn't cut buses and vocational education and the NHS and things like that. But it is indicative of just how bad things have got, that the only way we can look is backwards and say, well, actually, Johnson has some decent ideas and maybe he can still push those through. He can't. He hasn't got the money to do so. And, of course, there's this huge absence of new thought for the Tories. I mean, partly because the whole cut taxes to turbocharge growth ideas that Trustonomics represented who the lobby who were always saying oh our ideas haven't been tried they have now been totally discredited so they they're not playing a part in the debate anymore and there's this vacuum there's just managerialism
0: well he's had quite a long spell in charge now he's had three weeks that's a half a truss so he's, he's you know we should be seeing some meat on the bones by now was it easier to sell austerity in the early 2010s as a kind of painful phase that we've got to go through rather than now as actually this is just your future forever.
1: Yeah I think it was easier at the time because I mean the financial crash was undoubtedly a shock um, but it didn't feel quite so existential as what we're going through now what we've been through in the last few years and it's not just you know oh we're back to austerity it's austerity on austerity you know those cuts that were made in the 2010s didn't come back Mm. and where do you cut now that's the question everyone is asking. And the more that you cut, the more crises you tend to create in other areas. This is happening in legal aid, where we see that people don't have the opportunity to challenge decisions, end up in a very, very bad place and struggling. It's happened with the care system, where we have people stuck in NHS hospital beds, and they can't move because there's no social care to look after them. At the weekend, you know, the Chief Secretary of the Treasury Wrote an op-ed in The Telegraph, obviously, saying there were going to be public savings found through, uh, I think, selling underused buildings, starting to turbocharge the shift to digital public services and, get this one, harnessing innovation. Yeah. Whenever you hear the words turbocharging and harnessing, you should just just discount whoever it's, is speaking.
0: I always love the idea of like digital provision. I can't wait to get emailed a prostate exam. That'd be fantastic.
1: It's going to be transformative, Andrew.
0: I always hear that and think, no, no, it really, really isn't. So we're being softened up for spending cuts of about £35 billion, tax rises about 20 and a two-year recession. Um, the Conservative papers and the party's right are already complaining. Uh, have they forgotten the distant past of three weeks ago? Or is it is just in for another, like, ARG attacking the, on the tax front?
1: They haven't forgotten, but they just don't see how they could possibly win a general election on this prospectus. And they're right. They couldn't. <laughs> but, you know, they've always got their eyes on their seats and they know the next general election may not be far off and they're wondering what on earth they're going to be able to sell to their constituents from this because it's, it's just a complete crisis. And it's a crisis that has been largely of the Conservative Party's own making. We would be in a bad place, let's not deny it, if the Conservatives hadn't made some seriously bad decisions over the last 12 years because of the pandemic, because of Russia. But they've made it so infinitely worse that it is obvious to the electorate, who is largely to blame for the state we're in and why we're doing so much more badly than European countries
0: here um, the relief of not being governed by a crazy person has now kind of worn off what what have you made of the first uh, 3 weeks of the sunak eons so
2: i found the last few weeks certainly of the like signalling that both Hunt and Sunak have been doing, extremely fascinating, because it's almost this thing where, particularly with Hunt, it's like he wants to go out and signal, both to the public and to the market, what a gigantic bastard he is prepared to be, <laughs> with... The sort of weird thing behind the scenes of if everyone buys that I'm really willing to be a total bastard, then I'll have to be slightly less of one uh, because lots of stuff will be less expensive than it otherwise would be if I seemed like I was. So I think that the whole sort of signaling element of it is extraordinarily odd. And it's also weird to me, particularly with this sort of austerity 2.0 that's being spoken about, how much of... The sort of claims that were made by the Conservatives in 2010 that weren't really true now seem like they actually are in a way that they weren't over there. The sort of claim in 2010 was that there was no way that counter-cyclical spending would work uh, even in a demand-side recession because that was for some reason not something that we could do. There was no way for stimulus uh, to occur even though interest rates were constantly going down. And now the sort of nature of the recession that we're going into seems like one that is more sort of conducive to that sort of argument. So it's sort of odd that they portrayed... 12 years ago, the notion of this hellscape that we were on the verge of that seemed to not really exist. And through 12 years of their consistent actions, they have done more to bring about
0: that state of affairs than anyone else. It's called delivering, I hear. You <laughs> right, be... yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, speaking of crazy people, uh, what did you make of Truss at the Cenotaph at the end of the longest line of prime ministers in history? it it was
2: a hell of a lot of prime ministers and i think it's worth bearing in mind uh there were prime ministers from 1990 to 2016 and that was four people and then there was 2016 <laughs> to now and that was also four people and that's you know maybe brexit had something to do with uh destabilizing the political system uh, of this country over the last 6 years in a way that's probably not incredibly propitious to stability growth any of the things that these people claim to care about. But yes, it it is slightly weird seeing Truss in those situations and knowing that, you know, I wish her a long and healthy life and we will be seeing her in these situations for very many decades to come. And it's weird to know that decades down the line, I'm going to have to explain to my kids that it's like we tried that person as prime minister for a bit. It wasn't most of our ideas. It was the idea of about 80,000 people with an average age of ghost, but it was someone's idea. Uh, and then we was just like, no, 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 that absolutely can't happen.
0: It's going to be like explaining who Black Rod is. <laughs> this woman, you might... This is a very interesting part of the whole ceremony. That like, This woman was prime minister in a very pre-period. Stuff. I have a suspicion that they're just... This is not going to be allowed to happen because it's going to be too embarrassing with the Conservative Party and need for Britain in general. This is my prediction. John Major is going to take the hit for it. He's going to stand up and say, I think having done, you know, 30 of these, it's appropriate that I should step aside. And not all prime ministers have to go to the Senate basically so that she can get out of it and save everybody's embarrassment. Put a pin in that one. That is my prediction. Philippe, as a as a French citizen who's stuck here for some reason and not a fan of Brexit,
3: not really. You, no.
0: Are you getting any cold comfort from the fact that, like, literally everybody from you know ex people from the Monetary Policy Committee to the the chairman of Next an arch Brexiter is saying, yeah, the whole thing is a disaster now. This is the no. I'm, I'm
3: taking time. absolutely no comfort whatsoever uh, from it. Uh, it's something that, uh, as you know, I campaigned quite hard at the time. You know, yeah. from the referendum bill onwards, and. Um, Everything that we said would happen, has happened, absolutely everything. And um, no, and to be honest, I'm, I feel really detached from the Westminster debate. I think it's part of the problem is that we, we do have here such a, an isolationist and yeah. <sighs> view of politics, which is extraordinary. And um, it seems like for, for me, for example, you talk about solutions. Well, rejoin the single market, mate. Mm. You know, why, why not? It, why is it not part of the debate? Well, there
0: is a suspicion here on this podcast. Alex is very big on this, that he thinks that the party that takes Britain back into the single market will be the Conservative Party.
3: Yep. I, I, do, I, I. To be honest, uh, they're very good at winning elections, I suppose. I've been told that for many years. And mm. I think actually, yes. it's very good to, at being shameless. Absolutely. U-turns, you know, it's like a, a spinning mm-hmm. top, basically. Um, so why not? Ross, just to, to wrap up this topic, which will
0: plague us forever and ever. Um, last week, the reports are that civil servants at the Ministry of Justice are being offered a route out of the department before Rob comes back. Many of them said they were traumatised by him last time. I mean, this is becoming an imprimatur of this government now, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is. I don't think it means, though, that uh, we're necessarily going to see uh, Rob removed just as unlikely to see Suella Braverman removed. It's almost like, you know, now that Williamson has gone, it actually gets more difficult, not less, for Rishi Sunak to sack more, pri- uh, more of his cabinet because it makes him look weaker and weaker each time he does that. And his judgment looks worse and worse. So I think he is going to just hope that this blows over. And with everything that's going on in politics, to be honest, I doubt that a few anecdotes about about Dominic Ra being a bit of a bully and throwing some tomatoes from his pret salad across the table is really going to be regarded as the biggest story of the week because it isn't.
0: Would you advise Sunak to delay doing up number 10 then? Do you think he can get rid of the ghastly gold wallpaper? No,
1: nope, he should not delay it at all. He should do it right now. And the reason I say that is because, firstly, he's not going to be in need of money to do it, as uh, that's true. One, one of his predecessors was. And also, I don't think he's going to be there very long. So, frankly, he needs to act now if he wants to uh, stop having to put up with the ghastly decor that um, that Johnson put in.
0: And on In his favour, I... I am absolutely sure that Rishi Sunak's taste is the most boring you can possibly imagine. It will be. It's going to look like a travel lodge. Do it up like a travel lodge because that's what it is. You stay there for a bit and you move out really, really quickly.
1: Well, I'd be quite interested to know what he thinks of it actually, because Carrie Johnson's style was very kind of some. <laughs> sort of pseudo-colonial it was slightly mm-hmm. embarrassing kind of take on on um, high high British Empire in India start but I mean I wonder exactly how <laughs> Rishi sunak feels about that feels about all the stencils <laughs> of elephants and the bling and stuff uh, it's it's a curious thing to have to live with as the as the you know first p.m of Indian descent.
2: Yeah, I genuinely hadn't thought about it from that perspective. But yeah,
1: probably that is a bit.
0: <laughs> I have never felt such little excitement about a World Cup. I have never seen such little excitement about a World Cup. The supermarket bunting looks half-hearted. The papers are talking about it sheepishly. Have you even bothered to get a world chart yet? The first Winter World Cup kicks off this Sunday in Qatar. The Desert Nation, which saw the sports washing of the 2018 tournament in Russia and said, hold my beer, but only in certain fan zones because drinking in public is illegal there. Instead, the headlines are all about human rights abuses, the outlawing of homosexuality and the usual belligerence from governing body FIFA, which has instructed national FAs to stick to the football. So are we actually going to watch it? Philippe, we're less than a week away from the start. The closer we get, are people understanding
3: more that this is a big mistake? <laughs> I think everybody understands that. Mm. The only people who would um, question it are uh, the current regime at FIFA, uh, the Qataris, obviously, and the people who are quite close to the Qataris when it comes to um, parroting their lines in academia, uh, in some media. It's really a disinformation war at the moment, if Mm. you look at it. It's actually quite uh, staggering, actually, what I see. No, I don't think that uh, there's ever been um, a World Cup that has been approached in such a way. Um, It looks a bit to me like um, a, a crucial moment in the relationship that fans have with the game. In a way, it's brought a number of questions which people should be asking, should have been asking themselves for quite a long time. It brings them to the center of the debate, as in the uh, the fact that nation states are now investing not just in football teams, but they're also investing in cycling, they're investing in uh, Grand Prix, Formula One, and so forth. And that sp- global sports basically has become this, uh, this circus, mm. um, traveling circus, which can be used by, you know, on one hand, uh, nation states, on the other, investment funds, and with uh, money launderers thrown in. Yeah. So I think people are starting to think Hold on a minute. (laughs) What's going on? That's not what I signed for.
0: Well, the irony is that this great reputation lottery that's supposed to be taking place is actually making it worse for Qatar. It has has brought so much to I mean, you're closer to this than me. I mean, what are the the significant aspects of this that are really making a difference for the perception of Qatar and the understanding of what's going on there and football? yeah,
3: Yeah, I was going to say I don't use the word sports washing. Okay. I don't because I think in terms of washing... It got really bad in the wash. It's actually dirtier now than it was when they put it in the machine. It's yeah. not about reputation; it's about um, it's about wielding power on the international stage. It's about security, national security. Mm-hmm. Qatar went into football for national security reasons because they are a tiny emirate, the peninsula in the Gulf, the size of Connecticut, which is surrounded with re- with countries, which basically would like nothing better than actually take over, and the Qataris. Remember what happened in Kuwait when Kuwait was invaded by Saddam Hussein. And then immediately you had an alliance which came together and guaranteed and freed Kuwait. Mm-hmm. And the Qataris thought, oh, oh, maybe that's one way we could become this kind of actor. Kuwait has uh, always been a go-between negotiating country. You know, you go to Kuwait when you have a prime, you want two people who don't talk to each other. You want them to talk to each other, go to the Kuwaitis. And the Qataris are doing that up to a point. The sport is the big one for them mm. because now, everybody knows about Qatar. Everybody knows their, their presence. They, they have, but in terms of image and reputation, it's been the worst possible thing for them. Well, I was looking at your, your Twitter. I mean, you've pointed out the astonishing things you've seen. Now, there's a banner
0: unfurled, uh, at Roma, uh, which mm-hmm. read, thousands of dead workers, devastation of the environment, a shame for the world. Like, Roma are not necessarily known. They don't have the reputation as a kind of left-wing campaigning.
3: Well, a bit more than Lazio. Lazio, is. they've got a prime with the right arm oh. and raising it very high. Yes,
0: but well, yeah. I mean, but uh, and you've, you've pointed out things in Scandinavia, across Germany, fans are really getting into
3: this. Yeah, you? absolutely. And revulsion. I think uh, I, I think in England too, uh, mm. but maybe not on on the kind of scale we've seen in Germany, where in Germany we've got the fans are much more political. Yeah, you know, clubs like Saint Pauli or Union Berlin or even the ultras of Bayern Munich have been demonstrating against Qatar for years and years. Mm. I have to say that though. It is very much a Eurocentric protest. When I talk to my colleagues uh, from from Africa, from Latin America or from Asia, individually they do feel that there is a huge problem with this World Cup for all the reasons you've mentioned. But there is not the same um, wave of um, criticism Mm. in other countries as there is in in Europe.
0: Mm. You particularly highlighted a particularly nasty case, I mean, you wrote about this in, on mother of the uh, the case of Abdullah Ibrahim, who is a mm-hmm. former commerce director of the tournament. He's now in jail. Yeah. And this is the guy who worked for the tournament. What happened here?
3: <sighs> it's a very long story. I'll try to make it short. Okay. First of all, he's not Qatari himself, which obviously is a bit of a problem because there's very little protection for non-Qatari citizens in Qatar. And as you will know, Qatari citizens are only about 9 to 10% of the whole population. Uh, He worked for the Supreme Committee uh, for Delivery and Legacy of Qatar 2022 and got embroiled uh, in a discussion in the crisis cell uh, of the Supreme Committee after a strike by migrant workers. And he was very clear as to what he thought they should do. They basically own up to the fact that, yes, these workers worked on on the World Cup stadia. And uh, he got then uh, arrested on charges which, according to um, Fair Square, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, were, you know, a mockery. It was all done in 15 minutes, and he was sentenced to five years in jail, reduced to three on appeal. And it's it's carrying on. He has been, I mean, he's been on hunger strike. Um, he might go on another hunger strike. He's, uh, it's It's been a mockery of, of justice. And if this happens to somebody who was supposed to be part of the... Committee, which was supposed to deliver the World Cup for Qatar, One well, imagine what it's like for the rest.
0: Yeah, um, FIFA are not exactly covering themselves in glory in, in this episode. Apart no, from really. these sort of tin tinny instructions to respect the host, uh, they've issued instructions like stopping Denmark from wearing a shirt that says "Human Rights for All."
3: Yeah, which is uh, crazy, since the um, Article Three of the FIFA statutes um, specifies that FIFA should. Uh, uh, aim at promoting human rights yeah. in everything it does, but obviously human rights for all is a political pro- political then, message, which it is in Qatar. Yeah, it is in Qatar, but it shouldn't be for FIFA. This is where you have got this huge contradiction, which FIFA cannot solve. Is there a possibility that this, because you know this and Russia was so
0: absolutely mired in corruption and out, uh, ultimate dodginess, is there any hope that this might be a changing turning point for FIFA?
3: No. Okay. No, there isn't. The next World Cup has already been um, awarded to Mexico, uh, the US and Canada, I should say rather, the US and two other countries, uh, which environmentally promises to perhaps be even a bigger environmental disaster than, than this one, which is already going to be the most polluting sports event ever staged in the history of the world, which is great, isn't it?
0: Which FIFA are describing as the greenest one ever.
3: Yeah, correct. So how does that square? Uh, it squares with the fact that, for example, the, uh, the analysts, they have used to quantify the carbon footprint and also the carbon footprint offset happen to be a uh, body which is ultimately dependent on the Qatar Sovereign Fund. Mm. So that makes it a little bit easier to massage the figures, doesn't it? Mm. It does. Um, ah, here, are you going to watch it? Because I don't think I can.
2: Uh, no, I'm not. Because I think that for this particular World Cup, it's just sort of everything in the round, right? I can't think of a single thing where I'm like, oh, at least that bit makes sense to me. And maybe that does mean something good uh, going forward. You know, you've got a country with basically no footballing history whatsoever, building a bunch of stadiums in the middle of the desert during the European winter, which is... Of the, the least awful thing uh, is that it's causing loads of injury problems in European leagues because the game schedule just gets absolutely uh, truncated. The obviously appalling rights record, the thousands upon thousands of largely young South Asian men who have died, and even like the tokenistic things of like, oh, we're basically going to stop the system of forced labor that tied you to the employer who kept your passport while you were working thats It's like... Oh right cuz you didn't you didn't clock beforehand that that was a bad thing uh to do it's like oh no sorry it's like you you've brought up how the indentured servitude is awful so yeah maybe we'll do uh something about that i just think listen there there is no country on earth that is eden or what have you but absolutely everything about this is so egregious the easiest thing that one could do from the perspective as someone who loves watching the world cup and loves following england during these tournaments i'm just like nah i'm out i think that the players are in an extraordinarily difficult uh position because as a you know as a fan you can say right i'm just not going to watch this i think that it's a really big call uh for a player who might never get a chance to do something like this again, represent their country, have that honor, have that feeling uh, of potentially winning uh, the World Cup. And you think of, for example, England's uh, Danny Rose, who did go to the World Cup in 2018, but said to his family uh, not to come because he was worried about the racism that they might face in Russia in 2018, but said that sort of he almost
0: had become numb to it. Well, this is. I wanted to ask you, Philippe. I mean, we saw Gary Neville get hauled over the coals on. Have I got news for you for covering the tournament? Looks like Beckham has really damaged himself with this ten million pound ambassador deal. Mm. But the kind of the the, the counter argument that's always advanced is: well, the, they're footballers; they're in the football world.
3: This might be as a player; it might be your one shot. Yeah. Um, do you kind of understand that reason? I, comp- I, I completely understand that, and and perhaps for some countries more than for others. But, for example, if you watch the um, short film that the Uruguayan FA has done for the uh, when they named their, their squad, it was truly magnificent. It was so inspiring and so beautiful. And you think, wow, it's a pity it's wasted on that tournament. But it was absolutely amazing. And the footballers, I mean, shouldn't be held to ransom for that. And to be honest, it's far too late. And it might sound a little bit paradoxical for, to you. But I've been working on this dossier since 2009 myself a long time. And I really had the feeling I was howling in an empty room for a very, very long time. There were not many people in that room. Mm -hmm. And our countries took part in the qualifiers. (laughs) But I couldn't hear anybody talk about that at the time. Mm -hmm. But we qualified for the World Cup. You know, France did. Wales did. England did. And, And the players themselves, to put the onus on them is, I think, quite unfair. I think Their managers, I think it's totally fair to ask the question to the managers and to the federations. But you will have noticed that the federations, the member associations, have stayed very, very quiet with the exception, laudable exception, very brave exception of Lisa Claverness of the Norwegian FA. Uh, She was the only one to speak the way she should, everybody should be speaking. But I think that the institutions and the governing bodies are hiding themselves behind the people who will be on the pitch You know, to whom the game belongs. The game belongs to players and to supporters. So which is why I think like I have to report on it. It's my job and to carry on reporting. And also because I feel quite strongly about the fact that we shouldn't let the bastards win (laughs) Mm -hmm. in a way. And calling for boycott now is far too late. I can totally understand people deciding to switch off. Uh, if I could switch off, I would switch off myself. But I don't think the players, you should ask them to to stay at home. Um, quite a few of them have actually spoken out quite bravely, I think, yeah. in Germany, in Denmark. I remember as well Eric Dyer and Conor Cody for, for England um, said some quite interesting things. Gareth Southgate mm. has made has made sense. But what about the English FA? Yeah. What about the support of the English FA for the compensation fund, which is being at the moment promoted? By every human rights organisation you can think of, no. This is a four hundred million pound uh, compensation yes. for the workers. Absolutely, and the Germans, the German um, Federation has backed the project, and others have backed the project, but not the French and not the, not the English.
0: Now we've got a question from listener Alex Rees, long time listener, first time caller, and incidentally also producer of the podcast. Alex, hello.
2: Hello, So, Philippe. As a Wales fan, I feel
3: pretty morally stuck for France and England, as you say. They're qualified, um, and there's always the next one for them, though. For mm. us, it's not a guarantee. Since 2016 in Wales, National Pride has been at pretty historic levels. Is this enough justification to vocally support a team that may never reach this stage again in our lifetime, or are we all made hypocrites? No, I, I, I don't think... I think if you, get, if you keep your eyes open, I don't think you're a hypocrite at all. Um, and I genuinely think it's about th- this is diverting the responsibility to, to people or rather the guilt. You shouldn't feel guilty. You should feel responsible. There's a huge difference between the two. And I think as, fa- as a fan, you, you, are, you are responsible. And the fact that you're going to support, you know, Gareth Bale and, and the others doesn't mean that you're supporting the Qatari regime. The same way that people who were supporting um, France in 1978 in Argentina were certainly not supporting General Videla. Mm. And I, I think as long as you go with your eyes open, because otherwise you, you end up in a situation of kind of absolutist situation, which honestly is not going to make things any better. It's about the debate and it's about also reclaiming the game for you and um, for the pride of, you know, first tournament yeah, since 1958. Is that is that right? When John Charles couldn't make it because he was injured. And um, it's it would be, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think that there is any problem for you. You know, waving your dragon flag. <laughs> um, honestly, I don't. I don't think so. the, waving the flag for Wales is not saying the Qatari regime is great. It's not saying FIFA is great. As long as you don't fall in the other pitfalls, so to speak, which is what some fans. You know then, the fans who have been paid by Qatar to.
0: Well, there's a whole sort of uh, astroturfing thing going on, isn't mm-hmm. there? And Absolutely. Been, uh, you know, England fans are going to go over, be funded, and have what. Including they're going
3: one to of the guys from this awful. Uh, England bands. I knew they were wrong ones. Yeah, and uh, one of them is apparently um, is is, go- is one of the forty fans who are basically have going there on an all expenses trip, uh, all expenses paid trip, and are supposed to give uh, feel good stories. Yeah, to the Qataris about how great the, the experience is. I mean, that's really pathetic. I'm not. Su- I don't suppose you're going to do that. Oh, sorry, no. I'm not letting him out the studio. He's got to stay here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I. Honestly, it's not that you might have a great tournament and the rest of it, and you might enjoy the few games. To be honest, I still don't know if I'm going to enjoy the games because mm. when I'm going to see the stadiums, um, I'm going to feel a bit strange about the way that they've been. They've yeah. come out of nowhere, but I know what it took and what it cost to put those stadiums uh, up, and um, I'm going to look at the uh, people in the stands. And I've seen the figures of the number of tickets which have been sold. They're ridiculously low, Mm. ridiculously low. So in terms of atmosphere, it's going to be uh, awful. But the fans are not responsible for that. And I know it's a a difficult one. Yeah. But again, it's keeping your eyes open and being aware of what is going on, being woke in the proper sense of the word. Come on, you wokes.
0: (laughs) Culture secretary used to be an admired position, minister of fun, but over the past few years it has degenerated into culture warrior in chief under the likes of Oliver Dowden and Nadine Dorries. No culture minister has lasted more than 18 months since Maria Miller in 2012 to 2014. Dorries' attempts to kneecap Channel Four seem to have founded. It remains to be seen if the BBC will still lose its licence fee after the sacking of the woman the FT once called a combative philistine. Meanwhile, in the world of the arts, funding for culture has become hugely controversial after ministers instructed Arts Council England to divert its money into levelling up and move funds from London to the regions. Some 24 arts organisations, including the English National Opera, will get money to relocate outside the capital by October 2024. English National Opera is apparently going to Manchester. So what would we do if all this were our responsibility? We're going to play You Are the Culture Secretary. Ros, uh, like a lot of departments, there's been a lot of churn at DCMS. There have been 10 culture secretaries in 10 years. Has there ever been a coherent vision for culture under these conservative governments?
1: No, I don't think there has. I was looking back over the uh, history of at least some of the culture secretaries we've had. And of course, it was Jeremy Hunt back mm-hmm. in 2010. He was, of course, embroiled in the whole controversy over Rupert Murdoch's abortive bid for B-Sky B and had uh, contact with James Murdoch, which he wasn't supposed to have had by by private email and text. And so. But then, of course, you know, on the press side, he did double the budget for the opening ceremony for the Olympics. And of course, the legendary Danny Boyle—one that we we remember so so fondly—but then you know you had Maria Miller, who did precisely nothing at all, as far as I can tell, and Sajid Javid, You know, we learned that he liked Star Trek, and he liked you too, and he liked Michael Rosen. But I mean, I think the lack of vision is partly because culture. He's only part of the brief. It's the DCMS, right? There's media and sport as well. And the media bit in particular gets bigger and bigger with all the online issues that are coming on board. Culture gets hijacked by the more pressing things that are going on. And we've seen that with the online harms bill, which Nadine Doris was self-evidently incapable of understanding properly and getting through Parliament. It's extremely practically and philosophically complex idea online harm. The same applies to artificial intelligence strategy, which is also something that DCMS is responsible for. Um, It's it's actually a much more complex brief than just culture.
0: So you are uh, now uh, DCMS. uh, You're in charge of it. What are you going to do? What's going to happen to Channel 4 on the BBC for instance?
1: I would never fly a flag for Channel 4. I don't really understand the affection for Channel 4 in some circles. I think I look at what Channel 4 is supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be, under its brief and the Communications Act 2003, it's supposed to be demonstrating innovation, experiment and creativity in the form and content of programmes. Is it really doing that? You know what? I don't think it is. Mm. BBC is absolutely a different matter. And obviously, the BBC's role in British culture and its news gathering and the cultural content it produces is massively important. But for Channel Four, I can't, I can't feel the the pain.
0: I, the industry is really against privatisation. Do you think, do you think the privatisation wouldn't actually make that much difference in terms of output because it's already gone where it's going to go? Precisely. Mm. The government said that the licence fee would be frozen for two years and that abolished completely in twenty twenty seven. In the absence of the culture warriors, do you think that's still going to happen?
1: Yeah. I think it will be abolished completely in 2027 but that doesn't mean the BBC will stop being funded. I think there is no longer really a case for a separate license fee for people who have TVs. That is not sustainable in the current environment and it doesn't really it doesn't make sense now that people don't consume a lot of what the BBC does via the TV. Um I think ideally the BBC should be publicly funded out of general taxation. It would also help solve the problem the perennial problem that Conservative Uh, culture secretaries always complain about, which is the poor elderly people who, if they had to pay for their TV licence, might have the bailiffs come round if they don't pay it, etc, etc. Well, let's avoid that problem by not having uh, the need for a TV licence. Let's just roll it into general taxation.
0: Uh, Here, I presume that you as culture secretary are going to be putting the entire £4 billion uh, budget into stand-up comedy?
2: (laughs) No, so my... Initial move, if I were uh, the DTMs secretary, would be basically to uh, split the department. I think uh, a lot of people still think of it as DCMS, Department for Culture, Media, and Sport. Now, that's what it was in 1997. In 2017, became the Department for Digital, Culture, Media, and Sport. And Mm -hmm. if you want to look at an example of the public sector perhaps moving a bit slower than you'd like, I think 2017 is pretty late to be like, hey, I've heard a lot of people are on these newfangled computers. Uh, I wonder (laughs) what we're going to do uh, with those. And so, weirdly, as a result of the expansion of the digital economy and stuff, the actual stuff that DCMS is in charge of looking over has become extraordinarily broad and disparate. Like, they both have a lot of stuff involving the FA and a lot of the cybercrime stuff, and it just feels like that now digital has got to a position where that should be a thing on its own. Culture, media, and sport, I can still understand why they fully exist uh, together. And I think that if, if I was so say that digital has been put somewhere else and we do have culture, media and sport again. I think that the main thing that I want to do, which I think that the Conservatives have been for a great many reasons very reticent to do, is actually acknowledging the fact that this is a serious part of our economy and a genuinely world beating part of our economy the stuff that we produce the television the film uh out the premier League, the largest uh sports league in the world uh I believe unless unless the IPL finally beaten it um but I think because the assumption is that the people who work in these industries are not conservative voters and to be fair that is a reasonable assumption on the part of the government I think that They don't basically care that this is a gigantic, if you just want to think of it in cold hard cash terms, this is a cash machine for the country. How do we get it working in the best way that it possibly can?
0: What do you make of the kind of tumult we've had in the past few weeks with uh, Arts Council England transferring its funding into uh, levelling up uh, projects outside of the capital, which have led some places like Donmar Warehouse in London uh, losing its funding. The Barbican's lost its funding. but money's going to go into places like the National Football Museum in Manchester and Blackpool Illuminations? Well, I think that, yeah,
2: I, I come at this from two angles because... On the one hand, I am a lifelong Londoner and with all of the insufferable opinions about London that flows as a result of that, uh, as you can imagine. But also, I am someone who is fortunate enough to travel around the country uh, extensively and go uh, to theatres, comedy clubs and stuff all around the place. And it's not I think that money should be better spread out uh, across the country. Uh, you know, particularly in the wake of COVID, there were a lot of places, particularly outside of the capital, that were struggling uh, tremendously. And when I talked to venue managers and things in regional, in you know, verticals, uh, theaters and stuff, uh, these were people who genuinely did definitely need the support to continue these places that are really vital for local communities. In London, we do have an absolute surfeit of possible places uh, that you could go to experience um, all sorts of uh, opera, theatre, comedy, dance, whatever uh, it may be. But if you're somewhere where there's maybe a couple of places, I certainly don't think that Londoners should necessarily begrudge the fact that this funding is being spread around the country in perhaps a more equitable way
0: to ensure that it is something for everyone. Philippe, um, the French really know how to do culture. You're the culture minister of Britain now. What,
3: well, is, what are your priorities? My priority, uh, first of all, I would also split up like I would split up FIFA, FIFA in different mm. um, in organizations. I think it's totally absurd. That, especially, I think, Ned Doris in charge of artificial <laughs> intelligence. It's just, it's just unbelievable, really. What do we mean by culture is, I think, the, the elephant in the room, isn't it? Because I think we've all probably got different ideas mm. of what it would be. Um, I would, what I first would do would be to defend um, the arts. Um, I mean, I'm a musician. Yes. I mean, I think it's 111 billion bringing in every year to the economy, or used to be, Mm -hmm. because that's no longer the case, I can tell you that. Yes. Because we can't tour abroad anymore. Mm -hmm. Right? So, first of all, this realization, so sell it like that, we need to invest more. Like we say, we need to invest in HS2, we need to invest in a royal yacht. Why don't we invest in the arts, something we're actually pretty damn good at? And that means starting with education. And one thing that I've noticed as a musician is the decline. And to be honest, the vandalism of successive administrations, not just conservative ones, for education and teaching the arts everywhere. Putting money in culture, that's also buying instruments for school orchestras. That means supporting those orchestras, local orchestras, who actually have education programs, which very often they have to run a shoestring, things like that. All these things you can do. But certainly not. I mean, I can hear the argument for... Leveling up and getting things out in the rest of the country. First of all, in the rest of the country, there are plenty of great institutions which are already there. Second thing, the way they've gone about it is, is pure vandalism. Mm. For Manchester, I mean, the ENO, I'm particularly furious about that because there was absolutely no consultation. Apparently, Andy Burnham was not even aware that it was going to happen. Um, it's also like, could it go to Leeds? No, Leeds have already got their own. Offer For goodness say, yeah, yeah, which is great. You know, support Oprah North and also London. I'm a Londoner myself too. And um, one of the reasons why there are also all these institutions in London is because it's where people come from abroad. The reasons why the theatres are full, they're also full of people who've come from the USA, from France, from Germany, from everywhere, Spain, everywhere, China, you name it. So because we have this amazing centre... Well, I'm not a Londoner, and I'm here because it's all here. Yeah, what's wrong with that? But there's plenty plenty elsewhere. There's plenty Mm -hmm. in Manchester. Don't tell me there's nothing happening culturally culturally in Manchester or in Cardiff, for Christ's sake.
2: I will say, like, those two examples that you gave of Manchester and Cardiff, yes, of course, like, cities with astonishingly like, thriving cultural scenes... Big part of that is also like the developments that occurred as a result of, for example, large parts of the BBC relocating to Salford mm. and BBC Wales in Cardiff developing in the way that it has on the waterfront and stuff. So I do think that th- this can be aided by the movement of funding and stuff across the country. Like th- these things don't necessarily just, you know, emerge out of nowhere. Uh, there was investment in uh places like manchester and cardiff uh which i
0: think are, are good things How strange an argument with like good points on both sides <laughs> we never get them do we never happens before we go it's time for our panelists to tell us their escape routes politics takes up so much brain time but what is the music film television books whatever uh that helps us escape from the world of politics ah here what's yours
2: so I recently listened to an audio drama, which is uh, sort of made by Spotify and Gimlet, called Case 63. And this is, it's uh, adapted, the English language one is an adaptation of a Chilean audio drama. And the English language one uh, stars Julianne Moore and Oscar Isaac, a time traveller and a psychiatrist and working out uh, is he is he mad? Is he telling the truth? What's going on? Is he is he got an agenda? Or I think ten very short episodes that make a really 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 good bit of sci-fi and just a great audio drama. And if you speak Spanish, apparently there are three seasons of it, so you can work out what happens next. <laughs> just don't
0: tell me, Ross. How about you?
1: Uh, Well, my brain has been checking out recently because I've been trying to finish uh, my book and so when I'm having downtime, it has to be really downtime. So I've resorted to The Crown on Netflix season five. (laughs) My God, it's crap. I mean, it really is. It's like my brain has just checked out and gone on a med cruise. It's just the sight of so many incredibly talented actors impersonating tedious people. People like Dominic West and Jonathan Price and Imelda Staunton who could do so much more and you can almost see them. You could see them wanting to take that character further they can't because they've got to continue to impersonate (laughs) if you can imagine shakespeare having to deal with some with with characters with merely the emotional range of prince charles or sadly the queen it's it's like that it is not good drama (laughs) it's not going to be remembered as classic tv so
0: melder storton finding out different ways to say have you come far like
1: yeah, pretty much, and everything is signalled Like it's so ham-fisted. Metaphors are so clunky that it, it is awful, awful. And yet I can't stop watching the crap. It's all that my brain can take. Once I've churned out another five hundred words each day.
3: <laughs> Philippe, what's uh, what's your your escape route? Um if, if it comes to television, I've only just discovered uh, my my bad White Lotus, which I ah. absolutely i i i haven't laughed as hard. As hor- at horrible people as the much. F- the as first as- season is
0: amazing. I'm it's only... absolutely astonishing. Yeah. Don't
3: tell me, don't tell I me more, to... because I've only watched four episodes so far, and I'm I'm looking forward to the fifth and sixth and whatever yes. how many there are. The other thing, which is, um, I'm a great fan of Japanese literature, and mm. um, fortunately, quite a few publishers seem to share that passion, and there have been. A number of new translations uh, over the past two, three years and writers who, I mean, I I believe deserved to be known really worldwide, not just Murakami, you know, and and Tanizaki and, you know, uh, Akutagawa and people like that. But my big discovery is uh, uh, Yoko Ogawa. Um, whom I genuinely believe to be one of the greatest writers alive today of fiction. And um, The Housekeeper and The Professor is the one that I would recommend to you. Um, I would also recommend to have a box of tissues next to it. Oh, It's incredibly powerful and beautiful. OK, all right. Well, don't so you don't get the high-quality recommendations
0: here. I, as usual, now will now bring the entire tone down. Like Ian mentioned on uh, last week's episode, I've been mourning Kevin O'Neill, the great 2008 comics artist, who was basically Hieronymus Bosch for kids, the most grotesque artwork you could possibly imagine and yet beautiful at the same time. And I've been rereading uh, his signature work, which he did with Pat Mills, which is called Nemesis the Warlock, where... Essentially, an alien demon who breathes fire is the hero and the humans, who are all future space racists based on the Spanish Inquisition, are the villains. And it is fantastic. It's funny. It's ludicrous. It's beautiful. So if you can find a copy of Nemesis the Warlock by Kevin O'Neill and Pat Mills, give it a go. You'll be you'll be so glad that you did. And that's the end. Of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Listeners, thanks for listening. Um, Philip O'Claire, thank you for being our special guest.
3: Well, thank you very much
0: for having me. Roz, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Ah, here, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much so listeners don't forget uh, there's a new series of origin story and also doomsday watch both running now have a look on your app and if you want to help oh god what now to keep fighting its way through the podcast jungle you can always back us on patreon you will get the podcast early without adverts you'll get merchandise and a shout out on the show here is our theme tune demon is a monster by corner shop along with some thank yous to our lovely backers
2: Hello, and a huge thanks from me to Alan Hartnell, Michelle Murphy, Rachel Cousinow, Andrew Reid, Michael McAleer, James Lever, was probably on the wrong podcast James, Ben Dilley, Kerry Turner, Wu and Donna Marsh.
1: A big thank you from me to Angelo Joseph, Baljeet Panasar, John Darville, Bob Boyce, David Smith, Louis Gill, Julia Cox, Bruce C., Sean, and Anne Milvang.
0: And finally, hello from me to Samuel Little, Stuart Spencer, Adam Barnett, James Williams, Arjun Strike, Jens, Natasha Hobday, James Patterson, Rhea McFadden, and Kavan Choxie. We'll see you on Friday. Oh God, what now? It was presented by Andrew Harrison with Ahir Shah and Roz Taylor. Audio production is by me, Robin Leeburn, and the producers are Alex Reese and Jet Gerbertson. Assistant producer, Kasha Tomashevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. And Oh
1: God, What Now is a Podmasters production.